The wonderful Backstreet Boys are of course correct. We are back again. It's been a long time. Hope you guys are all well. Today we're doing gastric bypass surgery. Before we get going, I just want to mention there is a handout available for this episode. Of course, you don't have to use it, but we did email around 150 of you this morning with the handout. If you didn't get an email, you're not on the mailing list, so drop us an email, we'll sort that out. course we have a song for you a song that's related to gastric bypass surgery well I think it's related it's my favorite song over the past few weeks I've been listening to it non-stop on repeat and it's my aim to get every radiologist across the country across the world humming this song also so the song is called hooked the group are called why don't we and this is gastric bypass surgery here we go to have mentioned before playing that song that it's not very PG for those of you with young impressionable children. However, if they've already heard it, it's too late, the damage has been done, they're going to hear far worse as they grow up. So anyway, back to gastric bypass surgery. Any exam questions I've seen on this topic are always based around the complications of the surgery, which you need to understand, but you're never going to fully understand unless you appreciate how the anatomy has changed post-operatively. So let's quickly look through the pictures on the handout and talk through the surgical technique. So step one is to make a teeny tiny stomach. We want a small around 30 mils volume of stomach and the rest of it needs to be excluded from the food pathway. As picture one on your handout shows, the stomach is therefore sliced into two. The next step then is to slice the jejunum. That's done around 40 centimeters from the ligament of treats, I think that's how you say it, and that creates two limbs as they're called. 
proximally is the pancreaticobiliary limb. That's because it's transmitting all the stuff from the excluded bit of stomach and all the pancreaticobiliary juices. The distal limb is called the roux limb. The roux limb, the job of that is to take the food that's ingested and transmit it down to the rest of the small bowel and the colon. In order for the roux limb to transmit all the food that you eat, it's pulled up and attached to the gastric pouch you created earlier. You can see that in picture three. And finally, the pancreaticobiliary limb is attached to the jejunum. You can tell now why we made a handout, because explaining this via sound alone is ridiculously difficult. So if you haven't seen the handout, please pause right now, go away and look at the handout. It will take three seconds for you to understand the anatomy. The last thing to talk about regarding anatomy before we go on to complications is placement of the roux limb. Now, back in the olden days, the roux limb used to be placed retrocolic, so behind the transverse colon. To do that, you had to make a hole in the transverse mesocolon to allow the roux limb through. These days, that doesn't happen anymore, and the roux limb is placed anticolic or in front of the transverse colon. Although we don't do the retrocolic thing anymore, there are still loads of patients that you'll see on call who've had that done. So it's important to be aware of the different complications, which we'll talk about in a minute. So now your patients had their gastric bypass surgery, but why does it work? How does it work? Well, there are two ways. First of all, they've got a teeny tiny stomach, that little 30 mil gastric pouch. So they feel full very, very quickly. The second way, remember we've excluded a lot of the stomach and the proximal small bowel from the pathway of food. That's a lot of absorptive surface. So a lot of food is just not absorbed. So small early filling, small stomach with early filling and reduced absorption are the two ways these patients will lose weight, look super skinny and super hot but beauty has its price and the price is the complications of Ruan Y gastric bypass surgery which we're going to cover after some more of my favorite song. Complication one, which I have drawn beautifully for you on your handout, is a post-operative leak. So what do you got to know about post-operative leaks? Well, not a lot actually. All you need to know is that it will occur early, so within 10 days of the procedure. That's your first clue in an exam question. Another thing to remember is where they tend to leak from. There are three main sites, the distal esophagus, the blind ending bit of the pancreaticobiliary limb and the gastric pouch. 
I have very helpfully drawn them on for you, drawn those three locations onto your diagram. So if you're a visual learner, you'll remember them that way. And finally, the exam, if you've sat it before or if you haven't, it's actually very heavily clinical. And a lot of the time they'll ask you management questions. So if you're concerned about a post-operative leak, they may ask you what you'd want to do next. And your answer there is an upper GI study with a water-soluble contrast. The second complication, which is also very straightforward, is a gastrogastric fistula. And it's exactly what it says on the tin. The stomach that you split into two finds a way to re-communicate. And so the gastric pouch is communicating again with the excluded bit of stomach. This can occur early or it can occur late. And the patient will come back complaining of getting fat again. So what are you going to do if you suspect a fistula? The same thing that you do with the post-operative leak. You do an upper GI contrast study. So to recap the first two complications, post-operative leaks occur early within 10 days. If you're worried about one, do an upper GI contrast study with a water-soluble contrast and you may find leaking from one of three sites usually. Distal esophagus, the blind ending pancreaticobiliary limb or the gastric pouch. The second was a gastrogastric fistula. Again, investigate it in the same way, an upper GI contrast study. And all this is, is a reconnection of the stomach that you divided. This can occur early or late. So the timing will not be a clue in the exam. Let's take a break and then we'll move on to the next complication. complication on your handout is stenosis, stenosis of the stoma. As you'll see on picture three in your handout, the stoma that tends to be affected is the gastrojejunostomy. It's very rare for the distal stoma, the jejunojejunostomy, to be affected. The signs and symptoms of this are what you would expect. So if the gastrojej stoma is tightened, then the gastric pouch and distal esophagus are going to distend. How are we going to fix a stomal stenosis? We're going to fix it the same way we often fix esophageal stenoses with dilatation. As I've said, it's a fairly common complication. Up to 10% of patients will have stomal stenosis at the gastrojejunostomy site. The distal stoma the jejunojejunostomy very rarely gets stenosed. If it does, obviously it's not really accessible for dilatation, so it will end up requiring surgery. The other complication that I've mentioned on the same picture as stomal stenosis 
are marginal ulcers. Now the delicate jejunal mucosa is not designed to have gastric secretions in it, but obviously once you create the proximal stoma, the jejunum is exposed to the gastric secretion. So the proximal bit of the rulin, the bit that's adjacent to the gastrojejunostomy, is exposed to gastric secretions and is at risk of developing marginal ulcers. These are treated the same way you treat other upper GI ulcers conservatively. So that was stomal stenosis and marginal ulcers. So far we've covered postoperative leaking, gastrogastric fistulae, stomal stenosis and marginal ulcers. We have one more to do and then we're done. you are getting into this song, can I highly recommend that you don't watch the video. These kids all look around 13 years old and it's a bit disturbing watching them sing songs on this topic. Anyway, final complication is small bowel obstruction. I'm dividing it up into two. This can occur early or it can occur late. Early small bowel obstruction is very straightforward. If it's occurring acutely in the post-operative period, it's usually because there's been some edema, as you'd expect, or blood at the two stoma sites. So a bit of edema at the gastrojejunostomy or a bit of edema at the jejunojejunostomy. This complication is not unexpected. We've been poking around and making holes where they're not supposed to be, so a bit of swelling is allowed. So early small bowel obstruction acutely in the post-operative period is usually because of either a hematoma or some edema, some swelling, and we treat it conservatively as the swelling settles down or as the hematoma is dissolved, then the small bowel obstruction will settle of its own accord. If, however, the small bowel obstruction is occurring late, then that's a whole other story. Late small bowel obstructions, if it's been an open procedure, open surgery, then are most likely due to adhesions. And if the procedure was performed laparoscopically, then the small bowel obstruction is more likely due to internal hernia. I'll say that again. Small bowel obstruction, if it's an early presentation, it's going to be because of edema and we treat it conservatively. If it's a late presentation of small bowel obstruction after a gastric bypass procedure, then it's going to be caused by one of two things. If it's a procedure that was done open, then adhesions will be your main cause of small bowel obstruction. If it, the procedure was performed laparoscopically, then you should be concerned about internal hernia. Let's take a minute break and then we'll talk about internal hernias.
So internal hernias, I've already said this once but I'll say it again, if you have a laparoscopic gastric bypass operation then internal hernias are the most common cause of small bowel obstruction. They will occur within two years of the procedure and will occur in three characteristic locations. Now, I had to trawl through so many terrible diagrams to try and find a good one that will help you picture what's herniating where. I discovered this lovely picture, which I found in a paper, and I think it's the best from everything I've seen to help you really visualise. If you haven't been a surgeon in the past, it can be really difficult to visualise mesenteric attachments. So this, I think, is the nicest picture that I've seen. Since I've done all the hard work of finding you the best picture on the internet, please go and have a look at that picture and we'll talk through it. So the first most straightforward hernia on that image is the transmesocolic hernia. If you remember when we talked anatomy, I said back in the olden days they used to do a retrocolic placement of the rule limb. So you had to make a little hole in the transverse mesocolon to allow the rule limb through. That's obviously a sitting duck for hernia. And transmesocolic hernia is obviously the most common site of hernia if you have a retrocolic rule limb. So that's the first internal hernia. The little surgical defect we made in the mesentery of the transverse colon to allow the rule limb through. That's what used to happen in the olden days and that is the most common site of hernia in a patient with a retrocolic rule limb. That's the M on your diagram. The next one is the P. The P stands for Peterson's hernia. Peterson's hernia is an internal hernia within Peterson's space and the diagram in your handout shows this beautifully. This is the gap between the mesentery of the rule limb which you can see on that picture and the transverse mesocolon. You're more likely to get this kind of hernia as I've already said a hundred times if you have a laparoscopic procedure. That's because if you have laparoscopy, you don't get much in the way of post-operative adhesions. And what these adhesions do is they prevent bowel motility. There are a few signs that you'll see on CT, but they rarely ask you this question in the exam. But I'll mention them anyway. You'll get the rotation of the mesenteric vessels, the whirl sign. You might see the ligament of treats displaced to the right side and displaced anteriorly. One thing I will mention about Peterson's space is it was named after a surgeon, a German surgeon called Walter Peterson and his name is spelt Peter and then S-E-N but every book and every article seems to spell it with an O-N. Give the poor guy credit where it's due and spell his name correctly. It's S-E-N. So that is the transmesocolic hernia and Peterson's space hernia or Peterson's hernia. The final place you can get a hernia is 
within or through the mesenteric defect that you create when you make the jejunogenostomy. So that's it. That's internal hernias. And that brings us to the end of our complications. Let's quickly recap small bowel obstruction. So we said it can occur early or it can occur late. If it occurs early, most likely it's going to be caused by edema or hematoma. Leave these patients well alone. As the edema and hematoma improve, then the, the small bowel obstruction will resolve of its own accord. If, however, small bowel obstruction occurs late, then the underlying cause will depend on what kind of surgery they had. If they had open surgery, open gastric bypass, then, like with all open surgery, the cause of small bowel obstruction is likely to be adhesions. If they had laparoscopic surgery, however, they're going to have a lack of adhesions. And these lack of adhesions mean the bowel is not as tethered as it would be if they had had open surgery, which puts them at more risk of having internal hernias, causing small bowel obstruction. So internal hernias then. We said that internal hernias are more common, I'm going to say this a thousand times, if you have had a laparoscopic surgery. I've repeated it so many times because I've seen a question on this in the exam. Internal hernias are hard to diagnose and you have to have a high index of suspicion. I did say they occur usually within two years. I saw a study where it said average or mean time of presentation is 586 days, but they can occur at any time. So anyone with late presentation of small bowel obstruction having had a gastric bypass operation, you must think of internal hernia. You'll see signs such as swirling of the mesenteric vessels. You might see displacement of the ligament of treats, like I mentioned. And there are three characteristic locations where you can get internal hernias. The first was the most straightforward. If you have a retrocolic rue limb, if you've made a hole in the transverse mesocolon to allow the rulim through, then of course things can herniate through that hole. That is the transmesocolic hernia. So exactly what the name suggests. Obviously that only occurs if you had your operation back in the olden days when they used to do the retrocolic rulim procedure. The second site of internal hernia is Peterson's space. That's the space, the potential space between the rule limb, the mesentery of the rule limb and the mesentery of the transverse colon. So the gap between the rule limb mesentery and the transverse mesocolon. Finally, you can also get a hernia at the defect that you've created at the jejunogenostomy, the mesenteric defect you've made there. That's your three sites of internal herniation. So that's it. That's the anatomy of Rouen-Y gastric bypass and then the complications which we talked about. Postoperative leaking, gastrogastric fistula, stomal stenosis, marginal ulcers and small bowel obstruction. Phew, feels good to be back. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed that episode. We hope you liked the handout. We certainly enjoyed making it. Final word of advice, don't fret too much about this topic. What we've said today is probably everything you need to know.
We shall be back next week with another short episode. Until then, have a great week and we'll see you next time. Temptation cause it tastes so good You know I won't